If you would please be turning open to 1 Timothy. We are continuing our service, no, series. Um, Just what the church is called to in preserving the truth and honoring the truth in all things. Uh, We will be looking at, I'm excited about what this message uh, in chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, is where we will be looking at God's word. This is just, it reminds us, like Jordan was saying, it reminds us who we are as a church and what the church is supposed to be. But as I, so studying this and building it together and seeing what the Lord is doing, I just, I'm rejoicing constantly because we do this. And, it's, and I think we're fulfilling a vision that God has for us as his church. And I hope we are, one, encouraged by that, but also we are exhorted by it as well, to keep going and to keep shining brighter and to keep upholding the truth of God in all things, not in some arrogant way as we have figured out some cornering of the market on anything. We just... we. We celebrate Jesus because he's a great Savior. John Newton, who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace that we all know very well, on his deathbed, he said two things I know. I am a great sinner. Jesus is a great Savior. And we all feel that. We all know that. So this morning, we'll look at three verses, 14, 15, and 16. The Word of God says, I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, Believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Father, would we be freshly amazed? Not just what your purpose and commission and mission is for the church of your son, your your son's bride. Father, I pray that we would be encouraged for the truth to, to be reigning and ruling in our hearts personally. And the, the expression of our lives would be such that we have joy in the exaltation of Jesus. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. We live in a culture that is shedding absolutes. Everything, and we feel it, everything has become relative based on experience. What our experience has been becomes the truth that we operate in. But listen, this is not new for the church. This is not a day that we can say, man, this is, I mean, we, yeah, we, we say we live in some unique times and challenges. Yes, absolutely we do. But when we look at the scope of church history, it's nothing new. It's nothing new. That's why we look at the scriptures and we look at these epistles and these letters from the apostle Paul and Peter and John to the churches And we find so much application today because it's the same God, the same Spirit, exalting the same Son, the same sinners, the world inhabits, the same redeemed saints that God wants to speak to, to shine 
in that dark world. It seems new for the Western church that there's no, I think specifically for the American church, it feels new because there's no longer an objective morality that's helping govern society. As, as being from God. There's no more guiding influence of biblical standards in life and culture. It's being shedded. It's being done away with. Societal norms no longer line up with biblical standards. That's why there's the big fight. We've got to take all the Ten Commandments, statues out of courthouses. There's no more overlap with biblical standards and societal expectations and norms. We live in a culture where truth... It's based on the interpretation of an individual. And when we look in church history, whenever the culture didn't line up with the church, because that's not new. And, and in, I think uh, the United States has lived in an era of grace. I think England before us. But now England is becoming one. England sent, in the 1700s and 1800s, they sent more missionaries to the world than can, for it was amazing. It was an era of grace, and I think the United States has experienced that, but I think it's also coming to an end. And what we are as the church is not necessarily to fight for that societal norm to be kept. We're to shine brighter as the church, because what's happening now is that God has given us an opportunity for, for the refining of our lives and our message to truly Help the hurting and the lost and the suffering as they see us experience life with a truth that's outside of ourselves. And we say, God is my rock. I don't have something inside of me that I'm trying to figure out and help me along. Whenever the church and culture didn't line up in church history, it provided that opportunity for the clarification of the message, and we in, are in those times. And listen, it's ripe for revival. That's what it's ripe for. The church has had a window of reflection, so to speak, within the culture. But that's passing. But when the culture around us gets darker, the light of Christ in us is to be brighter and higher for all to see. That's what Paul is reminding everybody. This is the reason for the church. This is the reason. Here's our, our caption phrase for this morning. God is refining the church so believers will live for the truth to be set high for all to see. Think about it this way. Exaltation in exaltation. You know the difference between those two words? Exaltation, A-E-X-A-L-T, is something outside of us. We're looking higher than us, and we're bringing all the attention to what is higher than we are. That's Jesus. We want to exalt him and set him high. And our lives point to his glory. Our joy points to his glory. Our everything points to his glory. But exaltation, E-X-U-L, let me turn that down. Thank you. I'm hearing myself in the... TV back there, I hate hearing myself. It's very odd. <laughs> Look, I, I think the Holy Spirit is removed from recordings of my preaching. Because when, when I listen to them again, 
I'm like, this is just awful. It's a miracle people show up week after week. This is just, just God's wise ways of keeping me humble. Now, this is not some uh, skill that I have. It's like, Lord, I, I need you. <laughs> All right, E-X-U-L-T, exult, is when we experience something. So it's like when you know, uh, Milton did a great job of this last Sunday night when he spoke to the youth and parents uh, at youth. He said he was describing when somebody who's been to a theme park or Disney World or something, and you're, you're talking about it, talking about it with somebody who has never experienced it, and they have... they. They're, they can only experience the joy that you have because they don't have that joy personally. Exaltation is when we draw the attention to Jesus and then we're able to bring people closer because they're looking at our joy in Jesus. But when they experience that joy, that's the EXU, it's exaltation. It's the experience of that exaltation. That's what the church is to be about. So the first couple verses, I think Paul, the Apostle Paul is telling Timothy again how church should feel. So how is church to feel? He uses three different metaphors and examples to help us understand that. The first is family. He says it's the household of God. The church is a family filled, think about it, in reality, families are filled with sons and daughters. It's family. The church is a family where our identity in Christ is recognized, it's affirmed, and it's rejoiced in. We need the reminder. We need, all of us need the reminder of the power of the Spirit that is in us because of our salvations. And when we gather together, what LeVon was describing in us as communion together, we are reminding ourselves there is a difference, even though I don't feel that difference in a... a, 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 Oh, an exuberant way sometimes, or simply, I just feel like I'm going through this routine of life and I hate it. We need to gather together to be reminded, you know, the spirit of the living God dwells in us. And that's why we're able to, to see that in each other and rejoice in it, recognize it, and rejoice in it. We belong in church. That's why I'm so grateful for my experience Growing up uh, in church, got saved, arrived at uh, the church that sent us over here in New Orleans at nine years old and thought, this is much different than anything I've ever experienced. But what I began to feel was that the church was a family to where my own physical family started looking at us saying, why are you at that church all the time? Because it felt like family. (laughs) It was family. It was, it was, we enjoyed being together. And I'm, I'm thrilled to be able to have that experience in my past, but it's, it's my experience now. I love how we get along as a church. I love that. And, and part of that vision is to be a family. And listen, like every house, there's some house rules that apply. And there's some expectations that need to be met. Now, expectations, and that's what Paul is saying, how one ought to behave in the household of God. We don't like expectations, do we? Unless we're setting them and other people have to meet them. That's when we like expectations. But we personally chafe when an expectation is laid on us. 
You know, they're not received well. Expectations are not received well because too many of us have felt the condemnation and the judgment of not meeting the expectations of people around us. Maybe, maybe we feel the condemnation of ourselves because we didn't meet our own expectation. Some of us may have felt the sting of condemnation from other Christians in our church experience because they misplaced expectations and truth. They've made, they made expectations really more important than Jesus. Churches can easily, and, and we're not immune to this, Churches can easily slip into a performance mentality to what, what we're recognizing and rejoicing in one another is how well we're doing rather than who we are. And when we don't measure up, well, when we're not doing well, we don't want to show up because then we don't feel like we belong. Our identity gets weird and we start having an identity crisis. That's why a family, the identity is we're reminding, you know, we're sons and daughters of God himself. We remind ourselves of our identity. And remember the expectations in this letter that the Apostle Paul is giving Timothy in Ephesus. Chapter 1, here's the expectation. Stand up to false teachers. Hold to sound doctrine. In chapter 2, meet in a way that's attractional to unbelievers by following the order that God set up in creation to point to his glory as the creator God. And then earlier in this chapter, Chapter last week we looked at, make sure the leaders, they're respectable in and out of the church. We're to behave in a certain way. But we read behave and we insert physical appearance or we insert pious achievements. And so what gets more applauded is performance rather than Jesus. When our lives are to conform to what he looks like to bring him glory. We're to behave in ways that bring glory to God's order of creation so people will believe. Remember, he wants all to come to a saving knowledge of who he is. We play a part in that. As people come, we, we want our church to be a place where the broken feel like they can come. The suffering feel like they can come and be cared for. I don't want, and I'm grateful that I don't feel... I don't think we have that. I don't think we have false pretenses and churchiness that sometimes we can slip into. And I'm grateful. I'm very grateful. Now, the second aspect, I just did like this. Second aspect, how about two? <laughs> the second one is that the church, how the church should feel alive. Because it's the church of the living God. So I ask you, are you living life? that points to the fact that the, the spirit of the living God dwells in you because you are saved. The one who was there when God said, let there be light, and there was light. We don't live like that, do we? We live as if God, God's spirit dwells in everybody else, and we have like this this, this microscopic aspect. Yeah, I got enough that will get me to heaven. That's enough Holy Spirit that I got that everybody else, when they really walk by faith and they're the ones that God really uses, they must have a lot more of the Spirit. I just got enough. Nope. It's false teaching. The false concept that we give into. We have the Spirit of the living God dwelling in us. And we should be known for our wonder, 
more than our whining about how life goes. Because we love to whine and complain. We don't call it that. We call it, we don't call it anything. We don't call it out in each other. And I think that's part of the issue because we whine. Like we're two years old having a little fit because we don't get what we want. When people interacting with us, that there are too many curmudgeon Christians going around that are so annoyed with how people are, performance, and remember, we should have, as the church, our conversations about culture and things that happen in our country and society, we should have a conversation and a dialogue about that. But we need to remember when we're talking about sinners, we can't be shocked that they sin because they don't have the spirit of living God in them. We should do more to say, how do I need to yield myself to the God's spirit so I can set an example of life and it'll be attractional and draw them to find out what hope, what hope resides in you, that you live this way, that you don't respond to life in, in the typical ways that I see around me. We have his spirit started I, I, when Jacob was at Bethel. In, well, he named the place Bethel, the house of God. In Genesis 28, remember, he falls asleep and he sees in his dream, he sees a vision of angels uh, uh, descending and ascending on ladders up to heaven. God is letting him know his presence is to be experienced. And he calls that place the house of God because it was active. Then when Solomon dedicates the temple in 2 Chronicles 7, the Spirit of God comes and fills the temple. And he filled it to where the priest couldn't even stand up to minister. Oh, I, I pray for church to feel like that for us. That we are so aware of his presence that the only thing that we can do is get low. Jesus then comes on the scene, John 1, 14, and he is what? He is God made manifest. He is now what was dwelling in the temple and the tabernacle, the glory of God. It's now in Jesus. So Jesus, uh, God's, God's glory and presence and activity of interacting with him goes to the temple where the entire earth knew. That's where, they can, that's where God dwells, where they can know him. Remember, relationship, interaction, now, Jesus represents God's glory coming to people. And then after his death, the curtain's torn in two, and we have the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, where now believers are indwelt with, with the living Spirit of God. And so our church should feel, our church experience and desire should feel like we are coming to living waters every time we're together. In whatever context we're together, we should be drinking from those living waters as we highlight the grace of God and the glory of God and the work of Jesus Christ through preaching and teaching and, and discussion within our small group settings, we should be drinking and experiencing living waters. That should be how church feels. Church should also be stable because he says it's a pillar and a buttress of the truth. The, the pillar itself as a construction element, was all over the place in Roman architecture. Specifically at Ephesus, they had the Temple of Diana. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. There were 127 pillars holding up an enormous marble roof. It was 
really tall. You could see it from far away. So when Paul says the pillar and buttress of the truth, his audience remembers, we've got the temple there. Those are huge pillars. They understand what he's talking about. The pillars were tall and they were strong. They were tall so everybody could see and they were strong to support the roof. The church as the pillar is to be tall, spiritually tall, to raise high the truth of Christ for everybody to see. And the church is to be strong both in word and deed, the living through holy lives, to support that weight of truth. Truth. So those who come here who are broken and suffering and hurting find stability and something to connect to and be protected in. Churches begin to crumble when the truth is replaced, either with personal preferences, this is how we want church, and we don't care about what God says, or... When, when churches strive, when they strive to meet the cultural virtues that are being celebrated rather than the scriptures itself. We are in a battle, church. We're in a battle today for truth. The culture exalts personal truth. And the phrase that you may hear is my truth. That's a dangerous concept. And as believers who are indwelt by the Spirit of the living God, we need to be discerning and aware. Culture elevates personal experience as the filter for the reality that we have. And so when we look through our own filter at whatever we're looking at, we talk about, that's my truth. Which means, in the really the irrational thought, that people can, can just ignore the fact that there are two sides to every single story. And we need to be patient in learning that. We can't, we can't hear, see a clip or hear a, a, a headline and think we have all the information and render an opinion about it. But our, our, our culture loves to do that. Loves to do it. Because it's about personal experience. And if that's your personal experience, well, we've got to elevate that. We've got to highlight that. But when you elevate everybody's truth, you got no truth. Right? It becomes confusing. You can't figure it out. Rather than the church is to set the example by saying, no, truth is not inside of me. I use the truth to interpret my personal experience. So when I am suffering, when I am hurting, I don't dig down inside of me to try to find the result. I look outside of me. And I look to the exaltation of Jesus and who he is. And I, I, I use that to, to influence how I'm thinking about life. Francis Schaeffer, a theologian in the 20th century, now that's like really far away. The 20th century is really far away from us now. We've like left it a long time ago. Francis Schaeffer saw this coming 50 years ago. He ran a retreat uh, in, La, in Switzerland called Labri. And he, it, Labri was, uh, word, is the word for house. And he just had young people come in and out and asked big questions. And he saw this coming 50 years ago in, in the 1960s. He said, um, he began to call truth, true truth. Because he saw that everybody was using the my truth. They didn't say it that way, but they were using their personal experience to give validity and vindicate what they, were, what they thought was true in their lives. And he said, no, there's a true truth. There's something higher than that truth. And what he meant by that was, that truth that is gained objectively outside of us from God is the only truth that really can be agreed upon. 
We have to have a truth outside of ourselves for us to be in agreement and in fellowship. We can't constantly agree with everyone's perception of truth because it's all shifting sand. The church is to be a pillar and the church is also to be a buttress to the truth. It's support, the buttress is support for the walls because this is a picture of the church being a safe haven from danger. The church is to be a place of peace and security, free from criticalness, free, excuse me, from condemnation. This doesn't mean we overlook sins. It means we speak the truth in love. That's what Paul already told the Ephesians in his letter to them. No, walk with one another and point out where where, uh, life and God, uh, Jesus, don't match up. We want those to match. We want our lives to resemble Jesus by being sanctified and made holy by the Spirit. But we speak the truth in love. We want Christ Community Church to be a stable family, alive in the Lord, fulfilling the mission of the church. So the church is to feel a certain way, but here's what the church does in verse 16. The first thing is it confesses truth, confesses the mystery of godliness, Paul says. I think this means boldly giving reason for our changed lives that Christ has won for us. We're not ashamed of who he is, but we have lives that are changing. Not that we're perfect, they are changing, and we can give understanding to what people are hearing about God and Jesus by seeing a difference in our lives. We're confessing it. Listen, there will be a time as culture and church don't line up like they used to, there's going to be a time, and and this already happens in the workplaces. I know many of you have experienced this. There's going to be a time where we have to speak up for what we believe about Christ, and it's going to be costly. I recognize that about myself. All these sermons are put online. They've already had government officials that have tried to go after pastors. This is already something that we are living in. But we want to confess the truth. Because we have a lot of people ahead of us that have done it. You know, we don't confess. Remember the one of the, the arguments toward dying for something that you believe in. Like if you, people who are really sincere and die for something, you know, the terrorists on September 11th, 2001, which this year is 20 years ago. It's wild. When those, uh, they were believing in something, and so they were sincere about that belief, but how do we know they're wrong and we're believing about Jesus and the, the apostles and the martyrs in the early church, they, they died. So how do we know the difference? Here's the biggest difference. We don't, th- those early martyrs didn't die for what they believed in. They, they died for what they saw. They saw Jesus. And that couldn't be taken away from them. That couldn't be tortured out of them. They saw Jesus, which means he's alive. So everything that he said, it's true. Everything, how do we know the Bible's true? Because Jesus rose from the dead. And that means everything that he said is true. He looked at the Old Testament. He thought the Old Testament was true. Okay, the Old Testament's true. It really did happen. He talked about Adam and Eve being created. He talked about Jonah being in the belly of a fish. It's true. And we as a church can walk humbly and, and confess that and honor it. We affirm the truth. And what, that's what this little poem is. It's affirming the truth. And there's different ways to look at how it's positioned together. I think it's just a chronological order that gives understanding for Jesus and who the church is to be. First line, he was manifested in the flesh. He was the God-man. Colossians 1.19 tells us that in him 
all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He was the God-man. At one moment with his disciples, he's asleep in the boat when the raging seas are going. They wake him up, and he speaks and says, peace, be still, and the wind and the waves obey him. Creation obeys him, but he was asleep. The man, asleep, needing rest, gets up, calms nature. Only one God could ever do that, and that's Jesus. It was vindicated by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit proved Jesus, showing up at his baptism and descending upon him as a dove. And he proved Jesus in his teachings when everybody was asking, who is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him. He proved Jesus with every single miracle that Jesus did. And most importantly, he proved Jesus at the resurrection. The Spirit raised Jesus. The Spirit raised him. He was seen by angels. This angels, I think, is representative of two aspects, physical and spiritual, uh, because the, the word there can literally read messengers, seen by messengers. But I think the heavenly beings were there. Remember, heavenly beings are at the tomb first. They saw Jesus walk out of that tomb. What a sight. Man, oh, man. Because that's the one perched on top saying, hey, you're looking for Jesus. He was here. It's the right tomb. Not here anymore. He's alive. Seen by angels, but he was also that messengers was the, the word for apostles, sent ones. He was seen by the apostles and other believers, and they were sent out. Seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations from Acts 2, when the apostle Peter stands up and gives understanding for what's going on. And everybody hearing the gospel and the exaltation of God in their own language that came from all nations, from that moment to now and continue, the gospel is proclaimed in all the earth. That's amazing. That we don't live so selfishly that we're keeping a secret. No, we want everybody to be on this. Everybody to be on this. We are confessing this. Confessing with our words and our lives. The mystery with our words and the godliness with our lives is believed on in the world. This is more of a miracle. God's still saving people. He saved us. He's believed on in the, the miracle of new birth in the lives of people around us. God is calling his sheep and they hear his voice. And he makes sure they hear his voice. But we play a part in that. How will they hear? Unless we're sent as well. So whether that's the person next door, whether it's our family, whether it's another nation, so grateful that we've been able to participate in that in a small way. That's huge for our church. To send the J family. Um, I didn't let you in on this, but uh, can now, I think, James and Samantha Gilbert are now attending a Spanish-speaking church in order to prepare to go to Ecuador for three years in January. God is sending in order for people to be believed on in the world. And he uses us. And that taken up in glory, I think it refers to, yet that Jesus ascending, he, uh, he ascended, possible meaning. I think a more probable meaning to this is Jesus coming back and taking his bride up to glory. So they're confirming, no, there's another. He's coming again. He's coming again. But you know, I have this, I have this tug of war in my heart. I want Jesus to return because heaven is going to be so much better than anything we can imagine on this earth. 
but I don't want him to come back yet because there's still loved ones that I want to see saved. There's a tension in my heart. God, I, I, I would really like a body that has a back that doesn't hurt. That would be marvelous. But I want to see my loved ones saved and passionate for him. But you know, we, we confess the truth, we affirm the truth, we sing the truth. This phrase, this poem, was probably an, a hymn of the early church that all of them were singing as they met. So as we sing, and when we sang the gospel song earlier, just those four lines, don't you, you feel the truth of that? You feel it. That's what the church does. The church sings. And there are times that you know when life is just absolutely miserable, the day couldn't get any worse. What do you do? you got to find some kind of worship to put on, right? you go, You got a go-to album that you're listening to. It's like, I got, I got to figure out how to get off of myself and just focus on Jesus. We sing. That's what he wants us to do. We sing. So we want lives that are alive that sing his truth with our words and sing his truth with our lives, with our actions, with our deeds, our holiness. Because he's worthy. He's worthy, church. He's worthy. Lord, I ask that you would please cause us yet again to operate in such a wonder and amazement that you would even save us and that more importantly, you would put your spirit inside of us. God, I do believe that times are progressing in the life of our church experience, life is progressing to where the opportunity is ripe for revival. But God, that needs to start in every single heart of your people. So I ask for that to start. God, I ask for a spark. I ask, God, that we would have a surrender. As we sang earlier, we lay me down. We, we fully surrender so your gospel can go through us. And others will hear your call of the good shepherd. Because you have others that are not of this fold. God, bring them. Save them. So we can experience the joy of heaven itself over a sinner that repents. God, we recognize who you are. We recognize who you are in us. And we rejoice. We rejoice.